this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Morgan Grace, Licensed Clinical Social Worker and Licensed Chemical Dependency Counselor, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, generational trauma and in utero processing. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thank you so much, Noah. It's great to be here. Super excited to learn more about this, and, and I'm sure our listeners are too. So, you know, to start off, what are your credentials and experience? I know that you have several different acronyms after your name. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, I'm a clinical social worker, chemical dependency counselor. I'm also certified in EMDR, the trauma-conscious yoga method, and I'm a certified clinical trauma professional. How long did all that take? (laughs) (laughs) About five years, I would say, for all of those. Yeah. Good deal. Good deal. So your practice, does it have a name? Is it your name or... My website is morgangracetherapy.com. I operate under OWL, like the animal, OWL Wellbeing, P-L-L-C. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? At this time, I do not accept insurance. It just hasn't felt like the right move. Um, I launched from a small private practice to full-time right before the pandemic started. Um, and so I just I haven't had the bandwidth to look at credentialing and just the process it takes. Um, but I am launching a group practice next year, and I will be exploring some getting credentialed on some panels at that time. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, so at your practice, do you have a traditional sliding scale or um, a reduced fee rate that you offer clients? Mm-hmm. I do hold um, some sliding scale spots in my practice and it really, the way that I operate, it's based on kind of the honesty policy. I don't want people to be, uh, to lose access to resources. And so we just have an honest discussion about what fits in their budget. I honor that and we might reevaluate it as their situation improves. If not, I lock in that rate because I want them to be able to, to get the support that they need. Awesome. What about weekend or evening appointments? So right now, Monday through Friday, I'm Zoom only. However, on Saturdays, I go out to a friend and colleague's retreat property. It's called Mandala Hills. And I do trauma processing intensives in a yurt with some clients. It is very cool. That's awesome. So do you plan to stay telehealth like post-pandemic, whenever that is? Um, or do you think you'll do like in-person and telehealth or, or stay strict or go one way or the other? Mm-hmm. 
I plan to office in that retreat space that I mentioned. Um, they will be building a therapy cabin um, next spring. And I'm very excited to be able to be out in nature Monday through Friday, offering in-person appointments in that really lovely space. I'm jelly. (laughs) (laughs) It is really, really cool out there. (laughs) Um, Is being a therapist your first career? And if not, what was? No, I was actually a full-time musician, a professional musician for years. I started singing with my mom when I was very, very young and started singing professionally in my teen years. Um, And so that resulted in recording contract negotiation and singing and songwriting all over town. And yeah, I I reached a a pivotal point in my life in my early 20s when I decided I wanted to do something different and always felt called to help people in this way that I am now. What is it that drew you to being a therapist? Yeah, since I was young, I always found myself being the friend um, who people felt very comfortable opening up to. In high school, I would go early and meet up with students who were being bullied or going through really difficult times, almost like impromptu therapy appointments in the cafeteria, just talking. Um, And I really loved that. And so when I was singing for a living, I would also find myself loving not just the performing aspect of it, but just loving getting to talk to everyone after the show. And they would tell me about their life. And so I just thought, it's time to make a change. I always have music as my outlet, but I want to be able to do something for the collective. Very cool. Well, tell us a little more about yourself. Like, what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, pets, kids, et cetera? Mm-hmm. I have been married for nine years now to my husband, and we have an almost seven-year-old son named Sawyer. Um, as far as my hobbies, we just moved um, in town, and I love the nature trail. I love walking. I love waking up early and seeing the sunset, journaling. I still love singing whenever I get the chance. Um, still love writing music love watching documentaries and I love listening to jazz and right now my husband might hate this but as soon as Thanksgiving is over it's Christmas music all the time 24 (laughs) 7 in my house (laughs) and that's my jam (laughs) very cool okay so you know as therapists we have our tool bag right and in our tool bag we have a variety of modalities and concepts and ideals and strategies in there, right? What, what do you find yourself typically drawing upon when you meet with people? What are some common themes around the modalities and strategies that you use? Mm-hmm. Well, because I'm a trauma specialist and I've really honed my skill set in tuning into our bodies and our nervous systems, I pull from modalities like CRM, which we will be talking a lot about today, EMDR, um, somatic experiencing, parts work, working with different parts of self um, to help not only me attune to the client and make sure that their treatment is individualized and exactly what they need, um, but also to empower them to tune into themselves and experience their emotional body, their physical body in a new way and in a really safe way in the therapy experience. Very cool. So CRM, what we're talking about today, you know, in the work that you do regarding generational trauma and in utero processing is based in CRM, which is comprehensive, the comprehensive resource model, right? Mm-hmm. So what sorts of training is generally, generally required for a therapist to get certified in that? The training process starts with basic training, which empowers the therapist to learn how to attune more deeply to themselves, And by way of that, attune more deeply to their clients with the basic kind of skills of CRM, then it moves into some other nuanced trainings that more specifically address working with dissociative identity disorder, dissociation, generational trauma as well. Okay. 
So those, that, those are some examples of the sorts of things this approach can help with. What are some other things that CRM can help with? In CRM, we like to say not necessarily what diagnosis can it work with, but rather how can I use CRM to help with this diagnosis? So in my, my own experience in working with clients, it works so well with complex trauma to help treat acute and complex PTSD, other issues such as anxiety, depression, OCD. Um, it, it addresses a myriad of experiences for clients. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I'm also curious, what does CRM teach that helps therapists attune to themselves more? Like what are, what are some examples of what those skills and like means of achieving that would look like? Mm-hmm. One thing, one of the many things I love about CRM is it focuses heavily on therapists doing their work, clearing their trauma, focused on their healing. And so a part of the certification process is a a large amount of personal work hours where you do sessions with a CRM consultant to stay in touch and in tune with your experiences. So it teaches, it's almost like a parallel process sometimes Mm -hmm. by maintaining my willingness to look at my stuff and what might get activated in my life when stress happens and staying committed to healing that rather than pushing it to the side. Um, It really empowers clients, I think, energetically to feel safe to continue to do that work with their therapist. Makes total sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I wish more types of like approaches to therapy required more of that, quite frankly. Um, But that's very cool. And I think it's especially important when it comes to trauma, for sure. Um, So what do you generally say to new clients to orient them to your approach? I like to explain or just outline and become curious about their experience. Things like just difficult symptoms, addictions, issues in relationships, challenges in behavior, all the things that we call quote unquote presenting problems in the office are what CRM refers to as our defense response. So we have, all of us have these defense responses that protect us essentially from profound, often hidden, buried pain. So things like terror, rage, shame, pain, disgust, Those are the things that we are either taught or it's imprinted in us. Like we need to avoid it. It's uncomfortable. So in order to get to the root cause or what we call the truth of one's life, we need to find out like what happened, what happened to us, what did not happen that should have. Mm -hmm. Right. And finally, the way CRM also works with, Paradoxes. So, an example of that might be someone could hold. Yeah. So, I'm 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 intrigued. That's why I (laughs) said I didn't (laughs) want to say it, but but that's my me expressing my intrigue. Please tell me more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, an example might be on one side of a paradox, an attachment paradox, just the seeking, waiting, hoping, yearning, needing someone to be there. And on the flip side, the grief and sadness that no one was there in that moment. And we hold these paradoxes somatically. So you can imagine like stepping into the shoes of someone holding that particular paradox. That's really painful emotionally, and it can manifest physically. So CRM also has really beautiful, specific ways of working with each side of a paradox and being able to clear it so that a client can step into a different relationship with self and other. What are some common ways that you find trauma is physically manifested? So I have seen it manifest in things like autoimmune issues, digestive issues, chronic pain, migraines, Yeah, I mean, those are just scratching the surface, really. But trauma can, I mean, our body holds these experiences. We know that now. It's not just our brain. Um, And so 
we can have these issues pop up in our bodies, different sensations and pain that actually hold stories. It makes sense to me. Can you explain to our listeners what generational trauma is? This is a really well, relatively new, very exciting field um, that I love talking about. And at its core, generational trauma is anything that can be and often is in a lot of cases passed down from one generation to the next. So another example, some research studies have shown that mothers who experienced or went through 9-11 had offspring who were more likely to develop PTSD symptoms, have emotional or behavioral challenges. Um, Other research studies outline the Jewish Holocaust and those who went through that horror, their offspring were also far more likely to develop PTSD over their lifetime. And so, I mean, it's just, we can't ignore it. Uh, Native American youth have the highest suicide rate in the Western hemisphere. And they didn't experience the horrors that their ancestors did directly, but they hold it in their DNA. So I think it's important to talk about. I think the research is pointing out that we can't ignore it anymore. And it's time to do this level of work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. So (laughs) interesting. You know, just our biology is just amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell us a little more about the comprehensive resource model and what its rationale is in approaching trauma, as well as like what a typical session where CRM is used, like what that looks like. Mm -hmm. CRM creates a scaffold of resources neurobiologically. So what I like to tell clients and how I I like to think of it, and they talk about this in the trainings, is like the Russian nesting dolls. You start with the big one, they're all interconnected, and you get to that final tiny little doll in the center. So CRM creates this scaffold starting with attunement to self, like the attunement, therapist attunement to themselves, attunement to your client, and then the client's ability to attune to themselves and their experience. So all of these resources nested together allow for fear responses to clear out of the body while one is completely 100% present without flooding, without having panic attacks without ab reacting. So that at its core is what CRM is. It's not a phase-based approach like mm-hmm. other trauma treatment modalities where you start with safety, have that for a period of time, then you move toward preparation. It's not like that at all. You are doing all of it at once. Now it's obviously different based on each client. Sure. Um, but I think that's one of the things that makes CRM really special and, and very effective is the processing, the resourcing, the stabilizing, and the integrating are happening all at once. Okay. Mm-hmm. So tell us about what some key concepts are that are important in understanding CRM. Um, you know, I did a little bit of research I know there are seven primary resources and four secondary resources. What can you tell us about these and how do they play into this approach? Mm -hmm. This kind of goes along with that Russian nesting doll imagery. So once you get past the attunement piece that I spoke on, we then get into breathing. How is a client connecting to their breath? So there's various breath work exercises and ways of breathing in CRM that are activating different processes. So there might be one that we use to start a session that creates more stability in the nervous system, a more calm platform upon which to start other work. There's other breath work that helps prevent dissociation and keep clients present. Um, So, I mean, it could go on and on, but we need to assess when we breathe and when we have to notice how we breathe, that can either be 
just lovely and relaxing. But for many people who experience trauma, it can feel traumatizing and very distressing Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden you are more aware than maybe you have been in a very long time. So we have to work with the breath and any obstacles to being in the body before we move on to the next resource. So the next resource is something called sacred place. And at its core, it's just our connection with nature and experiencing whatever place shows up for that client from all the five senses and the visceral felt sense connection to that place. And CRM uses eye positions that anchor these resources. So once someone, let's say, like my sacred place is a beach and there's an eye position that I found when I first did this work, where anytime I go on that eye position, immediately I can smell the salt in the air. I can hear interesting. I can hear the seagulls. It locks you in to that really just kind of, for me, blissful present state. So we have breathing and um, what's the name of this one? My ADHD is <laughs> the best of me. Um, I can so explain have, all the rest. We have breathing and what was the name of this one? A sacred place. Sacred place. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so far we have breathing and sacred place. Okay. And so that sounds kind of like very EMDR-esque, kind of like the eye position thing. Um, is there any sort of like neurobiology, neur- neurology behind that? Mm-hmm. Like an EMDR, when it uses the bilateral stimulation piece, CRM uses bilateral music in a lot of cases. And so neurobiologically, what is happening in CRM is once you establish sacred place and the eye position and what I'll talk about a little bit more later, calling in internal resources such as power animals, beings that might even show up internally, and you're attuning to them, meaning let's say a lion shows up for me and I look into its eyes in the CRM process and I smell the smell of the lion. When we're in a deeply embodied state and experiencing attunement from that state, oxytocin, all those warm, fuzzy chemicals that tell us it's safe to orient toward our present. So basically, you can think about it like that double Dutch jump rope game in the brain. We can activate all the fear and the trauma material that's going on one side of the jump rope, but simultaneously, all these warm, fuzzy chemicals that are helping us establish neurobiological safety in the eye positions that anchor them are also running at the same time. When that happens, the fear can be stepped into. Mm-hmm. Fear that clients thought, I can't ever do this. It is intolerable, are then tolerable because they're safe. And we can expedite the process. The trauma comes up, they feel it fully, breathe it out, and they're on the other side of it. No, like I survived. I did this. That's healing. I love this. Um, Okay, so breathing and sacred place. Tell us about some others. So once we establish those, then it moves into grids, or sometimes I use the word matrix interchangeably. And grids can be developed from a myriad of different qualities, depending on what your goal is. So for example, if someone needs help or support getting into their bodies without ab reacting. We might look for grounded, present, solid, connected points in the body. And we connect them in an internal matrix that creates like this net of support. So we've got breathing weaving into sacred place and the eye position. We've got that weaving into the grid and the eye position that anchors you into the grid. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Now I need to know more. Tell me more. What's next. (laughs) And then that moves and evolves into attachment. Like how 
how are we in relationship to ourselves? So CRM works with ego states. I used the term parts work earlier, meaning we all have parts inside of us who hold various material, such as a specific trauma memory, or another part because of that trauma happening holds the need to maintain the addiction that helps them stay dissociated from that trauma memory. So one of the big goals in CRM is to assess and foster a healthy relationship between the adult self, which is that part of us who can hold space, maintain curiosity, non-judgment, and serve as a safe, secure attachment figure for the more wounded part that needs to process something. Once we establish that internal attachment, that's when we begin a lot of the trauma processing. That's when a lot of it happens. So another resource is called the distress resource. So if someone feels empowered to be in their body and they know, like they feel very secure and safe within sacred place in the grids, they can go on the eye position that anchors the felt sense of distress and it comes up very quickly and you can stay with it. And clients often describe feeling just very empowered to be able to get into that distress um, and be able to clear in that way. Now, if a client steps into that distress eye position and it feels like too much, the beautiful part about CRM is we just go back to one of the previous eye positions in the scaffold so they can continue the process. Okay. What are some other of the resources? If you go down that Russian nesting doll and get to that last one, we call that core self. Core self is a non-intentional being state. It's your true essence, remembering who you really are. Um, and that is accomplished through doing an age regression, going through a client's whole lifespan in this timeline and arriving at that core self state right before they were conceived in this timeline, that split second flash moment right before they entered this timeline. And it sounds super wacky or wild, but when clients remember that, and I, I remember going through the training and doing that core self work with an, a partner, it was absolutely life-changing. So it was really cool to be able to access that state inside myself and be able to move forward and, and offer that to my clients. This is so cool. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I really need to know more about is, is there, well, before we do that, is there another like uh, resource after the core self? So we covered all the, the primary resources. The seven core, okay. The other ones are, are, and all of them, I would say, are intuitively used by the therapist and the client together. Mm -hmm. Now, the one I really need to know more about is sacred geometry. Like, <laughs> I'm, I just really need to know about this. What can you tell us about sacred geometry? What is it and how is it utilized? I would say, is it okay if I share a quote and then kind of expand? Yeah, please do. Okay. The quote is, geometry is one of the main avenues available to us for probing the universe. Physics and cosmology have been almost by definition absolutely crucial for making sense of the universe. And this quote was um, Shin Tung Yao, who is a, a famous mathematician. So the reason I share that is, and this is the way that I experience and see geometry work with clients, geometry creates order. You know, you look at a nautilus shell in the ocean and see that spiral, that Fibonacci sequence. If you look, you can see geometry everywhere in nature. So when you take that ancient wisdom and apply it to your own or a client's own internal universe, it just further consolidates the healing changes that 
are happening within a client. It brings another kind of nested resource to make sense of the work that has happened and the work that is happening and the healing changes that a client is evolving into as they do CRM. And what might that look like? Like, give me a little more info on this. Mm-hmm. So during a session or at the end of a session, I might invite a client to call in the sacred geometry, you know, that represents the changes that have happened as a result of this session today. Um, and every time some shape will pop up in the client's experience. And I don't want to give too much away, but the client works with it internally to, again, like consolidate the change, maintain the gains, um, not only through the geometry that shows up, but all that happened before it, experiencing safe attachment, nurturing attachment, working with wounded parts, the eye positions, and so on. I am loving this approach so far. So, you know, obviously CRM is different than other therapeutic tools and trauma therapies, but tell us a little more about how it differs. One of the main ones I mentioned just a a little bit in general is that it's not Mm phase-based. Stability, processing, integration, they occur simultaneously. And this is really important. Resourcing, all the different resources we've talked about, those are considered actually a part of the trauma work rather than a means to avoid the trauma work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have a a real life example for this one. I was working with a client um, for several years prior to me training in CRM. And when this client asked to kind of transition and shift and continue her work in CRM when I returned from the training, a few sessions in, she just started crying and said, the modalities that we used before, when I felt overwhelmed at any point or, or panicked about material that was coming up, and because of the modality, had to, you know, take a break, take a breath. She said that felt really disempowering because the message that that gave me was, I can't do this work. Right. Yeah. So in CRM, we're not doing that. Clients can stay with hard things with all these resources. Now, we're always assessing for safety and and what a client needs in order to feel empowered to step into the material. But maybe as you can tell, or as you can see now, as we talk, you're so set up for success, really, with these multi-layered resources prior to stepping into the painful material. Yeah, I love it. Mm -hmm. What what is meant by CRM being a heart-centered approach? In our field, over time, there have been, I think, what I would call power differentials kind of programmed Mm -hmm. into the field where the therapist is viewed as the expert and the client is not. So CRM is a heart-centered approach because we view our clients as teammates, partners. We're in this together. There is no separation. There is no judgment. They're in the driver's seat and I'm in the passenger seat, trying not to be the annoying (laughs) backseat driver. So CRM teaches people that they have been and will be the captain of their own ship. It's just about discovering the hidden buried treasures that they've had inside them all along. And you don't need to believe a therapist is an expert to get a client to that point. Well, thank you for explaining that. Mm -hmm. So Can this approach assist in working with generational trauma that is perhaps outside of the realm of a client's conscious, 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 (laughs) Um, 
So can this approach assist in working through generational trauma that is perhaps outside the realm of the client's conscious? And how does CRM approach that? How do we access that? By creating a really robust resource scaffold, clients can access deeper states of consciousness And through that realm, they can get these ancestral downloads and stories outside and beyond what we view as the more rigid kind of cognitive 3D awareness, such as like being told a story by their grandmother. You know, we really can uh, in CRM get to the root. And sometimes it's a couple generations back. Sometimes I've done sessions with clients where it's like thousands of years ago. <laughs> it's pretty wild. But once clients get those stories and remember what happened in their lineage and how they hold it in this timeline and how it creates suffering in this timeline, they can heal it. This is so interesting. Okay. Now, another thing I need to know more about is in utero what does that look like? And, and what are some reasons that that might be necessary and or helpful? Mm-hmm. So for both generational work and in utero, when I've been working with a client on trauma that is in this timeline or uncomfortable experiences that are in this timeline that do not seem to be resolving no matter what we try, we're often working in the wrong timeline. So we either need to work in utero or generationally. So for in utero, for example, with anxiety in particular, if clients have this persistent hypervigilance, never feeling safe no matter what, racing thoughts, all the ways that anxiety can manifest physically and emotionally, it's often, not always, often sourced in utero. Because, I mean, imagine for a moment, you're in the womb, totally at the mercy of the chemicals and messages you're being introduced to in the womb. We are on the receiving end for nine months of all the experiences and thoughts and the chemicals that come from those thoughts that our mothers are going through. So when we're able to access those states I have seen time and time again, clients being able to, with the resource scaffold that CRM provides, step into that material, remember it, and be able to move forward. It's really fascinating. (laughs) That is so, so cool. (laughs) Um, I mean, it, it sounds to me like there's a whole hell of a lot to know about this approach, but is there anything that I haven't asked that would be helpful in understanding CRM um, that we haven't talked about? Gosh, I feel like we've covered the, we've scratched the surface, I'll say that, because it is a very complex, nuanced um, model. But yeah, no, I would say CRM, it's like a fractal. It's like a diamond. You look at one side and have an experience and an understanding and an embodiment. And then you look at another side and it's totally different. And that's how I view and witness like my clients and their healing journeys. You know, they are the captain of their own ship. I mean, I think we covered some really important foundational aspects of the model. Cool. Mm -hmm. So switching the attention here to more of you as a therapist, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Mm -hmm. So I do have experience working with the more vulnerable population. I um, was very, very honored and privileged to be able to support a client recently with writing a letter for gender reconfirmation surgery. So to answer your question, I do have experience working with vulnerable clients. Um, and it's, it's really an honor to be able to serve that population, um, these populations. CRM 
recently created a foundation that I'm very excited about that is one of its main missions is to be able to offer and offer these resources such as generational trauma work and trauma healing to these vulnerable populations, indigenous cultures and tribes, so that people have more opportunities to heal because the mental health system has been broken for some time where therapy has become a privilege and it should not be that way. That's awesome. I love that. So, you know, a lot of people, they'll schedule an initial session and then they will have copious amounts of anxiety leading up to that initial session. What could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about more on an ongoing basis as well? Mm-hmm. In an initial session, you can expect more of the traditional questions, you know, intake questions about family and support systems and all of that. But since most of my clients come to my practice specifically to do CRM these days, I'm also assessing what was their birth experience? What do they know about their maternal lineage? What do they know about their paternal lineage? Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the first session is kind of traditional aside from asking about birth experience and generational issues ongoing it's you know we get into the crm work which every session looks different depending on what the client is seeking and needing at the time okay now how would you say your clients would describe or experience you probably nerdy (laughs) goofy um i love bringing humor into the therapy room because we are talking about and processing through some really difficult stuff. And so I find that creating those appropriate moments of lightness um, can all can juxtapose the more difficult stuff we are digging into. So I will laugh with my clients and I will cry with my clients again, like I'm in the passenger seat. I'm not uh, one of the, I'm not stoic faced and just, hmm, tell me more. I'm in it it with you. (laughs) Got it. Well, you answered my next question, which is whether you're the type of therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients. So there we go. Um, Now, my favorite question, well, I guess I have several favorites, but one of my favorites is, How do you define holding space for someone? I define holding space as attuning to and focusing on one person with zero judgment and just maintaining curiosity all throughout. Just helping that person feel seen, heard, accepted without me having to say a word in those moments. It's a good definition. <laughs> well, I love that question because we all say like word things different, but we all essentially mean the same thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I love getting answers to that question. Mm-hmm. And what about this one? What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor or anybody, I guess, really? Yeah, I received a lot of great advice. I think the most important one that continues to influence my life to this day is to stay committed to doing my own healing work. If I'm not willing to go and see my shadow sides, who am I really to expect and guide a client into seeing theirs? So I like to maintain integrity with that commitment. So just staying true to myself by doing the work. It's an important one for sure. Mm -hmm. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? I believe that any client with whom I work comes to my practice energetically for a reason. And I view anyone that I encounter in my life, clients, especially everyone is a teacher. I learn so much from my clients. 
Um, and I do not take that lightly. And I know that, you know, I can step into my role as a teacher too, to others in my life, clients and family and friends. And I think that's just the interconnectedness, the beauty of how connected we truly all are. Um, and so that informs my worldview. Like totally no separation. I love it. We have a lot in common with that. <laughs> so, you know, after a really hard day, you know, you're working with folks around trauma, right? After a really hard day, what do you do to take care of yourself? And is there one thing in particular, particular that you like absolutely have to do for yourself? Mm -hmm. Well, I love using the breath work that actually comes from within CRM. I love that most of my working day is spent breathing with clients. So I feel like pretty great all day. Yeah. <laughs> Along <laughs> with <a> them. <laughs> but breathing, breath work is very important to me. Journaling is very important to me. Just documenting and kind of spilling out my, my day to day experiences and connection to nature is extremely important to me. Trees, dirt, water. I need all of it. And so I try to make that a priority as often as I can. Good deal. Here's another one of my favorite questions. How do you define happiness? Doing what it takes to find and access a sense of home inside yourself. Being able to get to that place where all the externals, all the people, all the stuff, all the things we're surrounded by no longer define how you experience and see yourself, but rather you flip that around and home is inside you so that anything that happens outside is icing on the cake, but it's not the cake. <laughs> Makes sense. I like that definition a lot. Now, a couple vulnerable questions, although the second one you've already answered. First one is, what is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? Oh, that's such a good question. I've had a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I say that with a lot of lightheartedness and love. Um, the one that comes to mind, I was working at a treatment center. I was very excited about a group that I was about to lead, um, I can get pretty mad scientisty with my groups. So I had all these art supplies and all this stuff, and I was going up this set of stairs while all of the clients were following me up the stairs. Well, I missed a step. And <laughs> all of the art supplies, I mean, I fell up the stairs. Usually people <laughs> fall down. <laughs> I hope there wasn't <laughs> glitter in there. <laughs> <laughs> Brushes, paint, clay, canvases. I mean, anyway, so I was so embarrassed at first, but some people helped me up and gathered the supplies. And it was actually a really good teaching point and a lesson of no one is exempt from getting to ask for help when they need it. Right. Yeah. And I needed help. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. That's a good one. The next more vulnerable question is, which you've answered multiple times throughout this interview, is are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I am very committed to that. I am a trauma survivor. Um, and that was another draw that pulled me to this field outside of my experiences within being a musician is I did the work um, to heal from those experiences. and also wanted to pay that forward in a way to my clients because I never like to say I totally get it because I think that's, you can't totally get someone's experience. You're not in their shoes, but I can certainly have, I've experienced the same flavors of pain uh, and do feel like I can walk alongside clients with that understanding, having gone through doing the work myself. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as therapists, although our life experiences are like 
separate from the work that they do that that we do it is intertwined i believe deeply and i think that when we have lived experience with something that like can differently shape like our insights and like intuitions into a person um and that's why i think as a therapist having a variety of life experiences positive and negative are really important in helping people yeah that's beautifully said 100 percent agree you know we can turn something that was not so great into a a like almost like a strength we can use it for us rather than against us yep absolutely what once was incredibly painful and unbearable can turn into a gift and it takes work uh, and discomfort to get to that point, but it's always possible. Totally, totally. Oh, you know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I, I learned a lot today. I'm, I'm going to do some more research into this modality. It's something I'd even be definitely interested in, in pursuing. So thank you for sharing your knowledge today. Oh, gosh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Noah. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for next week's episode featuring Marjorie Siegel, licensed professional counselor, who will be speaking about her practice in an area of specialty, embodying secure attachment. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T, R-E-O-N dot com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.